All right, well, happy first Sunday of Advent. Um, if Advent is uh, a new term to you, uh, Advent is uh, a season within the church calendar or the liturgical calendar, whichever term you feel most comfortable with. And uh, it's the, the four weeks leading up to um, the Christmas celebration. Now notice uh, that this day of Advent is, um, well, uh, Advent is also the beginning of the, the church calendar or the liturgical calendar. But notice that uh, the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, doesn't begin with this big, grand celebration of Christmas, but rather it begins with a season that's known for waiting, a season that's known for preparing. And I think that this is so beautiful. I think that this is so, um, well, subversive in a lot of ways, right? Because we find ourselves living in an era of uh, two-day prime delivery, uh, two-hour uh, target pickup, and uh, available on-demand streaming, right? We don't have to wait for much. We don't have to prepare for much. We have everything at our fingertips, and yet the Christian calendar begins with waiting. I think that that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. We'll get a little bit more into Advent uh, in our sermon. But uh, today, for Advent, we're starting a new sermon series called Sparking a Prophetic Imagination for a New World. Uh, I will be honest, I totally ripped this name from a biblical scholar named Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he has a book called The Prophetic Imagination. And uh, throughout this book, he, he's, he's trying to wrestle with, like, what is it that the, the prophets are trying to do? Um, and certainly part of what they're trying to do is get us to imagine a, a new world, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to recognize like the world that we find ourselves living in could use some, some renewal to it, right? And so uh, what the prophets are doing is trying in some way to spark an imagination within us to think about a new world, a world that God wants to create right here among the old, and then invite us to begin to live into that imagination. So uh, we're going to continue following our narrative lectionary, but we're going to be jumping into some prophetic texts uh, throughout Advent asking like, what is the, the prophetic imagination that they're trying to spark within us and what, do, what, what would it look like for us to begin to live into the reality of this new world right here, right now. So that's where we're headed for Advent and that's where we're headed for today. But as we get ready to jump in, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, so grateful for the gift of this community and we are so grateful for the, the gift and the chance to uh, gather together today. God, thank you uh, for your spirit that's here among us, and thank you for uh, the story of scripture. And as we get ready to open up the scriptures and wrestle with them, uh, we submit ourselves, we yield ourselves to your spirit, and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most uh, influential books that I've read over the last number of years is a book called Church Forsaken uh, by a guy named Jonathan Brooks, or more affectionately known as Pastor J. Um, you've probably heard me reference Pastor J at some point because not only was this one of the most influential books that I've read, but he's also one of like, the more influential voices and figures and leaders in my life over the last number of years. Uh, I first met Pastor J uh, when I was uh, in college. We had a chance to sit down with him. Uh, and he, in his neighborhood and hear about some of the, the work and ministry that he and his church uh, um, have been doing. So Pastor Jay is a, a pastor uh, in Chicago, but uh, he really um, has taken seriously um, this move to like root himself in like a neighborhood and to um, be intentional about what it means to live 
well, intentionally in a neighborhood. And so uh, this book is really uh, a collection of like 15 years of experience doing this and wrestling with uh, a passage from Jeremiah, also known as Jeremiah chapter 29, which of course is our text for today. So fair warning, um, just to be very clear and to give credit where credit is due, much of what I'm saying today is from uh, this book and from Pastor Jay. I thought, you know, with it being Thanksgiving, maybe it'd be good to just bust out a comfy chair and just read to us, but I wasn't sure that that would go over super well. So just to give uh, credit where credit's due, much of today is from Pastor Jay and his wisdom, uh, which I have gratefully gleaned from. So our, our hope and our goal for today is to wrestle our way through Jeremiah 29 and ask ourselves this question of like, what is this, this uh, prophetic imagination that uh, Jeremiah is wanting to spark within us? And we also want to reflect on what it means for this to be the first text of the Advent season. So uh, let's just jump right in here to Jeremiah 29. So starting in verse 1, we read, These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There's a lot happening there, but hopefully the main word that sticks out to you is this word exile. Now, one of the ways that we can think about this word exile is the place that you don't want to be. (laughs) Now, this most certainly would have been the case for the Jewish folks who found themselves in exile because the exile for them was this point in time when Babylon, now the world superpower, all or done all over again, came in laid claims to their land, and forcefully displaced them and sent them off into a foreign, distant land. So you can imagine that these are people who had grown up in this land. These are people who grew up with their family, with their friends, with their community, having this this deep sort of uh, divine connection even to this land, and now having been forcefully ripped away and sent out into a far-off distant land, you can imagine that to be in exile is a place that they didn't want to be, both like physically, like they physically didn't want to be in this place, but also like a, a state of mind and a state of existence. Like they didn't want to be in exile. They didn't want to be under the subjugation of another foreign superpower, and yet this was the reality that they found themselves in, being in a place that they don't want to be. But I think for most of us, we can uh, relate in some way to this experience of being in exile, of being in a place that you don't want to be. Maybe you don't want to live in the neighborhood that you live in, or maybe you don't want to live in the city that you live in, right? And all you can dream of is getting out of that neighborhood or getting out of that city. Uh, maybe you grew up in the neighborhood or the city and like you just you think that there's brighter horizons ahead, right? And so you just want to muster up all of your strength and get out of this neighborhood, get out of this city. Or maybe a particular job brought you to the city and now that job's gone. And what is what what left what else is left here for you in this city? Or maybe a particular relationship brought you to the city and that relationship went south and now being in the city is a reminder of that relationship. Whatever it may be, maybe the city, maybe our neighborhood is a particular place that you don't want to be. Or maybe uh, a sort of exile sort of experience for you is this COVID era, right? Who doesn't want to get the heck up out of this, right? <laughs> None of us want to be in this place, and we can, we can like, feel it in our bones. Like This is a place that we don't want to be. Or perhaps our exile experience is our current political climate where things like kindness seem like a relic, right? Or maybe our exile experience is a particular job or a particular school that we find ourselves in. Or maybe it's just uh, some sort of existential angst that we're feeling in this moment as we discern who it is that we want to be and what it is that we want to be about. Whatever it may be, it's a feeling of like being in a place that you don't want to be. 
Now, as we find ourselves in exile, there's a bit of an impulse that all of us might feel. And I think that impulse of exile is to divest and to disengage. So it like, kind of like at a party that you don't want to be at. All of the introverts in the room know what I'm talking about, right? If you find yourself at a party that you don't want to be at, are you going to like chit-chat and be the life of the party, talking to everybody and getting to know everybody's names that you don't know? Probably not, right? You're going to get yourself a good drink and sit down with a plate full of snacks and sit there until whoever brought you to that party is ready to leave and you can go home and get comfy and watch Netflix, right? That's our impulse of exile, to divest and disengage. And I think that this makes sense for the Jewish folks who found themselves in exile. Like You can imagine them thinking, like, we don't want to be here. We don't know these people. We don't know this land. We don't care about these people. We don't care about this land. So why would we do anything other than divest and disengage ourselves from this land? And if you found yourself feeling in some sort of place of exile, you too can relate to the sentiment of like, I just want to get out of here. (laughs) So my impulse here is to divest and to disengage from the place that I find myself in. My, uh, the summer before my senior year of uh, high school, um, I was just a few months removed from uh, the death of my mom, and uh, right around two years removed from the death of my dad. And under some wise counsel, uh, I actually saw a counselor <laughs> uh, a few times. And... Uh, one of the most profound things that he had said to me was as I was entering into this year of what felt like an exile to me. Um, I had just moved uh, schools. I had just moved homes. I had just moved communities. I had just moved groups of friends. He said, don't divest and don't disengage. <laughs> but wherever you find yourself, commit yourself to it fully. Find friends, find communities, get involved in sports, get involved in all of the clubs that you would have been involved in. Because this, 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 um, this muscle of like rooting yourself in community is in many ways like an exercised muscle. And if that muscle were to lie dormant for a year, it would be really hard to like flare that muscle back up. And if you don't do it here, chances are you may not do it again. Or it may be really difficult to do it again. So with that in mind... Let's hear the instructions that God uh, gives to the exiles through uh, the prophet Jeremiah. So in verse 4 we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into uh, exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So recognize the instructions that uh, the people are given here. Build houses, plant gardens, take on spouses, give your kids into spouses, and multiply and do not decrease. Do those sound like instructions of divest and disengage? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) See, even though there's this impulse within exile to divest and disengage, we're given these instructions in exile not to divest and disengage, but rather to invest and engage. Not withdraw, not pull ourselves back, not to withhold ourselves from the place that we find ourselves in, but to actually go against the grain and do the opposite, to give ourselves to our community, to give ourselves to the place that we find ourselves, to invest, to engage in the space that we are. Now, I think this like, leads to a really uh, necessary question of why in the world would we do that? <laughs> because I think this impulse is a good one, right? Like we want to protect ourselves in some way. So why in the world would we open ourselves up and invest and engage in a space that we don't want to be in? 
I think all of this goes all the way back to the beginning of the people of God with a particular man named Abraham. And what we see happening when God calls Abraham is God gives Abraham and the people that would come from Abraham a particular vocational call. And that particular vocational call given to Abraham and the rest of the people of God is to be a light, to be a blessing, to be a conduit of God's goodness, and to be an example of what it means to be a human to all other nations around them. This is what it means to be part of the people of God, to be a light, to be a blessing, to be a conduit, and to be an example to all of the nations. Now, this vocational call was meant for them to live into whether they were in the land that God had given them or whether they were out of the land that God had given them. And so as they find themselves out in exile, this call remains on their lives to be light, to be blessing, to be a conduit, and to be an example. And in fact, it's actually easier for them to be this light, to be this blessing, to be this conduit, to be this example as they find themselves in exile, because no longer are they insulated from all other nations, but now they find themselves living out among the nations. And so as they find themselves in exile in Babylon, We have these instructions to not divest and disengage, but to invest and engage as a way of living into this vocational call of being a light, a blessing, a conduit, an example. Because you can't be light, blessing, conduit, example if you divest and disengage from the space that you find yourself in. The only way that you can do that is if you invest and engage in the space that you find yourself in. And so we see all of these instructions uh, from from Jeremiah to the exile summed up best in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, there seems to be some sort of play here with welfare, like my welfare being caught up in the city's welfare in some way, shape, or form. My, my welfare getting caught up in the, the welfare of the space that I find myself in. Now, welfare is not a word that we use often, is it? Um, so it might be helpful to, to think about welfare in a different light. Um, this word welfare comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which is this big, bold, audacious sort of term within the the Hebrew uh, imagination. Uh, We often translate it to peace, um, but it's it's this this dynamic sort of word that can mean like wholeness and flourishing and like abundant goodness. Or as uh, author Oshita Moore defines it, she says that uh, shalom is God's dream for the world as it should be. Nothing missing, nothing broken, everything made whole. So, so think about this interplay now in verse 7 with this idea of God's dream for the world. Seek, the, 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 seek God's dream for the city that you find yourself in. For in God's dream coming to fruition in the city that you find yourself in, you will find God's dream for your own life. See, there's this, this, this mutuality that exists between God's dream taking place in the city that you find yourself in and God's dream in your own sort of life. But recognize to seek God's dream for the city that you find yourself in, that requires that we don't divest and disengage. But to seek God's uh, dream for the city that we find ourselves in, this requires something of us. Requires that we invest and engage in the city that we find ourselves in. Because the reality is, when we talk about shalom, we recognize that my shalom is caught up in our shalom. 
That it's impossible for me to seek my shalom without also seeking the shalom of the people around me. It's impossible for me to seek my shalom without seeking our shalom because our shalom directly leads to my shalom. Our flourishing directly leads to my personal flourishing. There's this intimate, intricate connection between uh, our flourishing and my flourishing. Now, perhaps you recall all the way back to the beginning of the sermon series when we started in the very beginning of scripture in Genesis and we looked at a picture like this, although it was handwritten, so it was much more messy, right? Now, we won't go through the whole sermon. I'll direct you back to the podcast if you're interested in that. But we went through the days of creation. We acknowledged that there's day one, there's day two. Then on day three, uh, God does some creating and then God calls it good. Then on day four, same thing. God does some creating and calls it good. Same thing on day five, creating good. Day six, creating good. And then at the end of day six, God looks upon everything that God has made and calls it very good. And we acknowledge that within our Western sort of mindset, like we see day three and see that it's called good, and we assume that there is goodness in day three in and of itself, that day three by itself is a good thing, or day four by itself is a good thing. Like we assume that goodness is in the object itself. But in a Jewish sort of imagination, they see this word good, this Hebrew word tov, and they recognize that goodness is not in and of an object itself, but that tov lies in the connection between things. Or as author Lisa Sharon Harper puts it, tov is in the ties between things. So goodness isn't here or here or here or here, but tov, goodness is here and here and here in these connections so that with this interlocking goodness, God can look and call it very, very, very good. And the reason why we uh, bring this up is this is a picture of shalom, This is where the story of scripture begins with this like overwhelming goodness of shalom. Now we recognize some things come in, fizzle these ties, sin enters the world and we recognize that shalom isn't present and that's why the rest of scripture is talking about this recreation, this reestablishment of shalom. But we bring this back up because we recognize that like the act of creating shalom, the act of seeking shalom, the act of finding shalom is not a solo project. Shalom doesn't exist in and of ourselves, but shalom exists in this web of mutuality, if you will. Shalom is dependent upon the goodness uh, that exists between me and another, between me and my community as well. Now, this may feel very theoretical, very pie-in-the-sky sort of thinking, but I promise you that it's actually very, very practical. So let's think about MySpace here. Not the website for anybody who's 25 years or older, but my space, like we'll, we'll call it my house, right? So we think about my house. And like any person who has a home that they live in, I want to see shalom flourish in my house, right? I want there to be flourishing. I want there to be abundant goodness. I want there to be uh, wholeness. I want there to be peace, right? But I recognize that my space doesn't exist in a vacuum. But my space is rooted in a particular place. Call it my block. Call it my neighborhood call it my city. Now, if I want shalom to exist in my space, and I do everything I can to create shalom in my space, but there's an absence of shalom in my place, is there actually shalom in my space? There may be, but maybe not for long, right? (laughs) 
Because as soon as I step out of my space, that shalom is absent. Meaning like there isn't shalom for me anymore. Or perhaps if the absence of shalom in my place is bad enough that it may actually start to infringe upon the shalom of my space. Meaning that my shalom is caught up in our shalom, right? Or perhaps we can think about it as our church. Our church being our space, right? And we have this deep longing to create something like an expression of the kingdom of God within this community. And we give ourselves to the peace, to the wholeness, to the flourishing, to the abundant goodness of our community that exists within these four walls of this building. But if we don't ever think beyond the walls of this building, if we don't ever think beyond uh, the walls that, it, that hold this community in, if we don't think about the community that we find ourselves in, if we don't think about the place where God has placed us on 3rd Street Southeast, is there actually shalom within this community that we call First Mennonite? See, our community, even as a church called First Mennonite, is directly caught up in the shalom of our neighborhood that we call Southeast Canton, which means that we can't just look inward and care for ourselves and assume that we will create shalom and find shalom for ourselves because our shalom is caught up in the shalom of our place as well. Now, I recognize that for uh, us who have grown up in a a Western sort of world that like has shaped us and formed us in an individualistic sort of way, um, that this sort of thinking might require like a a bit of a paradigm shift for us, right? Um, In his book, uh, Pastor Jay talks about uh, their church going through this paradigm shift of like thinking about how my shalom was caught up in our shalom. And he said that, that um, the journey through this paradigm shift was helped along by the use of one particular word. That was the word with. He said that they, he uh, challenged their church for an entire year to run with this theme of the power of with. And so throughout this year, they changed all of their language in their songs and in their uh, prayers. And it was no longer God loves me or I love God, but it was God loves us and we Love God. And this power of with actually began to shape the way that they talked about, like how they involved themselves in the community. And it was no longer that we serve our neighbors, but it's that we're serving with our neighbors. It was no longer that we love our neighborhood, but it was that we love with our neighborhood. And throughout all of this, there was this challenge to shift from I and me to us and we recognizing the reality of how shalom works, (laughs) that my shalom is caught up in our shalom, and that if we actually want to see shalom take place in my life or our life, that is deeply dependent upon like our shalom, whether that be my community or the neighborhood that I find myself living in, that my shalom is caught up in our shalom. And I think that this is the prophetic imagination that Jeremiah is trying to spark within us. For us to recognize that that me is intricately and intimately caught up in we. And to begin to expand our horizon, to begin to expand our imagination of what my flourishing, what my well-being, what my shalom can look like. And begin to recognize that if I want shalom in my life, then I need to pursue shalom in the life of my community, in my neighborhood, and in my neighbors as well. Which I think leads us right into uh, our understanding of what it is that Advent is all about. See, Advent uh, is a a word that simply means coming. And in Advent, we, we, uh, we root ourselves in two different types of coming. We root ourselves in the first coming of, of Jesus. 
And we reflect on this first coming of Jesus where we recognize that uh, in Christ comes Emmanuel, God with us, to bring about and establish some form of shalom on earth as it is in heaven. But we also look ahead towards the second coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, where one day God with us will ultimately make God with us' home on earth as it is in heaven, establishing once and for all this abundant flourishing of shalom on earth as it is in heaven. But we recognize that we are a particular people caught in between these first two coming or between these two comings. And we recognize that in in this in-between space, God with us invites us to join with what God is doing in establishing shalom on earth. And we take our cues from Jesus, who wasn't God uh, for us or God uh, dwelling in heaven calling the shots for us, but rather God with us, who entered into it with us to create some sort of shalom, recognizing that our individual shalom is caught up in this collective sort of shalom. So my prayer for us as we enter into this Advent season is that we would be people committed to seeking shalom, that we would seek the, the flourishing, but not just of our lives, but uh, the lives of our communities, the lives of our neighbors, the lives of our neighborhoods, recognizing that our shalom is intimately caught up in the shalom of those around us as well. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, we are grateful uh, for uh, the gift of Advent and the gift to um, begin a new year by slowing down, uh, by waiting, by reflecting, by preparing our hearts. God, we're grateful uh, for the the gift of of communities, whether that be our church community or our our neighborhood community. And we're grateful that you uh, use the prophets to spark a new imagination in us, to, to see ourselves not in light of just ourselves in our own flesh and blood, but to see ourselves caught up in something bigger than us. And so God, as we um, commit ourselves to walk in the way of Jesus this Advent season, uh, would you stretch our imaginations? Would you help us to move from me to we? And would you help us to um, recognize that, our, uh, that my shalom is caught up in our shalom and the shalom of our space is caught up in the shalom of our place? And as we do that, um, we pray that, that your shalom would come and take root on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.